Hey, this is Richard Marks, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. The early stuff has so much power. The later stuff is sophisticated, sure, and and it's good. But for me, and I can't tell if it's personal if other people would agree, the very first recordings have the have the the perfect balance between the rhythm and blues they listen to and their own experience that they bring when they sing love love me do they were mine today's guest is Ricky Lee Jones an american singer musician songwriter artist and author Over the course of a career that spans five decades, Jones has recorded in various musical styles, including rock, R&B, pop, soul, and jazz. Her debut album, Ricky Lee Jones, was released in March 1979 and became a hit, buoyed by the success of the jazz-flavored single, Chucky's In Love, which hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100. The album, which included guest appearances by Dr. John, Randy Newman, and Michael McDonald, went to number three on the Billboard 200 and produced another top 40 hit in Young Blood. Her appearance as a virtual unknown on Saturday Night Live in April 1979 sparked an overnight sensation. Jones was covered by Time Magazine on her very first professional show in Boston, and they dubbed her the Duchess of Coolsville. After making her debut performances in 1979, Jones appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone Magazine. Photographed by Annie Leibovitz, the cover image showed Jones posing in a crouch stance, wearing a black bra and a white beret. Jones earned four nominations at the 22nd Annual Grammy Awards, including the Grammy Award for Song of the Year, Grammy Award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for Chuckies in Love, Grammy Award for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance for The Last Chance Texaco, and the Grammy Award for Best New Artist, which she won. The album went platinum within the year. Jones is a two-time Grammy Award winner and was listed at number 30 on VH1's 100 Greatest Women in Rock and Roll. Her album, Pirates, was number 49 on NPR's list of the 150 greatest albums made by women. In 2021, Jones' memoir, Last Chance Texaco, Chronicles of an American Troubadour, was released by Rogue Press. Welcome, Ricky Lee Jones. I wonder if we could begin with the story of your musical background. My background from a young age is musical. My family was a musical incubator. 
my grandfather had been a successful vaudevillian, a master ukulele player and a singer. And he taught his sons, my uncle Bob and my dad. And, um, and then I grew up listening to their music and, you know, the, the most cherished and important thing I think that they passed on to me was that being a singer was an important job, an acceptable job. And I think a lot of families being a musician is kind of, well, why don't you get a real job? But that's not what it was like in my family. So I grew up hearing my dad's taste in jazz, which was Tommy Dorsey. Um, uh, he had um, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, and Nina Simone records. Um, and then in the early 60s, they bought Harry Belafonte and Andy Williams. Everybody did. So that's what I heard besides a couple of uh, pirate records, um, Captain Hook records that I had, that were mine. That's what I heard growing up. You know, when one looks back at your story, it tends to have uh, almost an overnight success kind of quality to it. I wonder if you could comment on on what it must have felt like to be at ground zero of of the Ricky Lee Jones story and when we all uh, discovered your wonderful music. No, I actually, um, I write about this moment in my book. Um, it was the opposite. When, um, when I was in the year before I, I got a record contract was the year I struggled most. I had no job for a while. I had nowhere to live. And I said to my mother, I'm, I'm going to go to school and learn how to be a stenographer in case this doesn't work. And she said, but this is your dream to be a musician. Oh, are you giving up on your dream? Don't give up on your dream. Don't go be a stenographer. That's the opposite of what I thought she would say, the opposite of what you'd expect a parent to say. But she was really, really looking out for me. I wonder if you could tell me about your Beatles origin story. When did you first hear these guys? We'd been hearing about these people with long hair from England. But understand, we had no relationship with the British in the middle of Arizona. They were, uh, uh, you know, kings and queens from long ago. So, But everybody was talking about them. And we turned on Ed Sullivan, which we, we probably would have done. I was at my cousin's. They were cooking chicken and rice aroni because the moment is embedded in my brain with smells and sounds, everything. I stood at the door between the kitchen and the living room and they came on. And um, at first, so there were feelings like, who cares? What's this? By the end of the song, the world was changed. I and everybody there who'd been listening to Gene Pitney the night before was changed. It was quite fantastic. How did this um, this early discovery then of the Beatles, um, how did that continue? You know, this was just the Sullivan show. This was just the beginning. Yeah. Well, um, so I was 10 um, then. So I was just leaving childhood. So it was a perfect moment to introduce me to romance and life outside of my family 
um, because school was was a terrible hell for me. So the Beatles offered love and um, and a place to go in my bedroom that had nothing to do with reality. I had beetle cards and beetle boots. I even cut my hair short like a beetle, but I was a swimmer, so that was actually the, the practical reason. But the main thing I notice about me is I became a beetle rather than being a girl who liked beetles. Yes, I liked, as I got older, I did a little bit of Cynthia Lennon, you know, in the hopes that if they drove by, I'd look familiar. But for the most part, I was attracted to being them. And I didn't really realize until I wrote the book, wrote the book about my life that, that what I wanted was to write the songs and sing the songs and sing harmony with, with like that and um, be like that. But it's more than that. It's it's not just that. The the music that they wrote at that time is almost mystical in the bridge that it created. Now, this is going to sound social, but I'm speaking in the ethereal plane here. In the bridge that it created between the old world and the old music and the new that was coming. There you know, from their perspective, they're thinking of um, American rhythm and blues or American whatever. But from my perspective, as somebody who hadn't heard that music, because I'm a little kid, everything they did coming through them has this slightly Celtic resonance of harmony and their relationship, I mean, I'm not even going to try to unpeel it, but there was something fantastic happening. That's why they were able to slam the whole wide world to alter the river of music and so culture in the whole wide world. And I think songs like Love Me Do, there's something, you know, I just think of it and I get goosebumps. There's There are songs that they did, like There's a Place. The early stuff has so much power. The later stuff is sophisticated, sure, and, and it's good. But for me, and I can't tell if it's personal, if other people would agree, the very first recordings have the, have the, the perfect balance between the rhythm and blues they listen to and their own experience that they bring when they sing love love me do you know oh, and the, their enunciation I imitated and it still comes out of me sometimes everything about them uh, they were mine my boys you know I I I teach a Beatles course um, every fall and we're now in the section where we're going from the help album to the rubber soul album. Uh And one of the things we talk about is um, a very clear effort at providing female empowerment in their music. When Lennon and McCartney would begin to write about a very specific female character. And uh, this goes back to those early songs you just described. They realized that they had this massive audience that was, you know, at least two thirds of that audience is women. Right. I mean, it's incredible. And they realized that they were speaking to this audience. And so they began to devise a, 
a kind of new woman, a female character, the the day tripper, right? Or the woman in Drive My Car who doesn't need a man, you know? She doesn't need anybody. She's got a driver, but that's it. I'd like to give you my perspective because if you go back from here and assign to them an agreement, you it almost makes their work um, suspect. I think that's that stuff happened organically, but it seems to me that John Lennon has a decidedly angry view towards women. Paul McCartney does not, and he has a he's a little bit higher. In his, in his ability to express loving things in music. When you put them together, they could, <laughs> I, don't, I think sometimes they wrote together, sometimes they brought songs and, and the other finished it up. But when you put them together, they do talk to women in both a slightly antagonistic and a, please don't hit me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Let me drive your car, please. So, so they got, you know, I think that their fantastic imaginations with that in mind, we can go after the fact and say they're doing this stuff. But John Lennon is saying stuff like, I told you before, you can't do that. And uh, this is the second time I caught you. T- I have to tell you again. And he's got another one where he's even angrier. And, he, and it seems to me he threatens hitting her. But um, so he's always. But but when a man is that angry, they do seem kind of weak and vulnerable. So he, when he writes Norwegian Wood, where he sets her house on fire, for Christ's sake, <laughs> you know, uh, um, you know, in the in the in the song, hopefully um, it, 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 I we fall for we fall in love with John Lennon because he's always showing how vulnerable he is and how much he wishes he could love and be loved by this woman. That's a given. Paul's Paul's view, he writes perfect little things about her walking in the rain. That's all. Here's just a, 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 a. so he's almost painting. And together, um, I, I would just be careful of assigning to them. I mean, maybe they said that, but but I don't believe it. I believe what they did happened by accident, by that fusion that makes um, heat and electricity. And, and you know, if we sat down to do it on purpose, it would show that we did it on purpose. And maybe their, maybe their work got weaker uh, for, the, for that. But, I mean, I love what you're saying. I love how you're diagramming it. But I'm always wary of people putting what's popular today on what happened in the past when we weren't thinking that way. We led to this moment, but we weren't like that then. You know what I mean at all? Oh, absolutely. And it, there, I mean, <laughs> the world of English literature, I think even as a term for that, it's a temporal fallacy, right? When you try to place today's ethos onto right. a previous period. I'm going to write that down because that is what's going on in art all over the place. A temporal, a temporal fallacy. That is, thank you. I, I wish I had been educated. <laughs> well, you're welcome to uh, zoom in on class anytime. I know you would be welcome. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, Paul does describe this character that they just love to depict. And I, I think you're a hundred percent correct that, 
his tension with John and the tension they had about women and their depictions probably produces that energy that we respond to both then and now, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a conversation happening then as in now um, between all the artists who are popular. So if the Rolling Stones write about uh, Mother's Little Helper, all their angry, disrespectful songs they wrote, uh, and, those, and the Beatles listen and they write something in, res- you know, in response. We'll be back with more from Ricky Lee Jones after these messages. We're back with more from Ricky Lee Jones on Everything Fab Four. You know, you you quoted, you can't do that earlier. The one that I know my students, um, their hackles go up about. And I don't know that those hackles would have gone up in 1964, 65, but it would be the song on Beatles for Sale, No Reply, right? Which is almost about a stalker, Uh um, you know, who is upset and maybe is even following this woman and can and realizes she is no longer interested in returning his affections. There are a number of songs from the early 60s about men watching the woman pull down the shade. There's a, that, that was a popular, <laughs> talking was a popular thing. Sometimes it turns out okay that she was, she was, it wasn't a real lover and I ran up and it was me or whatever. But but that was, that was not, um, he wasn't unusual in that. And he's a jealous guy. I'm just a jealous guy. He, he just kept letting you know his whole life that he was never going to be safe. It was always going to be a struggle for him. And um, it probably took a very powerful woman to, to, um, to withstand his storms, right? But I'm not here to talk about him personally, just, just the music that he created. But yeah, you can't, everybody's screaming because I'm the one who wanted, but if they, so you talk to listen to me, please listen to me, I go out of my I can't help my feelings. Um, but there's another one that, that's more... Sure, there's I'll Cry Instead from the Hard Day's Night period where he says, I'm going to break hearts all around the world. That's right. That's right. Yes, that's what he's, he does. Yeah. So his you can tell him, not just because he's singing, but um, you can tell his point of view from Paul, who's just kind of a gentle, a gentleman. Okay, but yeah. to be fair, so so Paul is a gentleman, but you know we always have fun with the song. Also on Beatles for Sale, weirdly enough, um, I'll follow the sun, right? Where Paul's this happy-go-lucky sort of Mother Nature son, this natural guy who likes walking on the trails. You can almost see him with his guitar, right? But the part that uh, particularly the female students in class always... Um, find to be rather dark is that he says one day you'll look to see I'm gone. Right. Um, as though he's going to desert them and they'll never know why. <laughs> There's another song that was out at the same time by a woman. Uh, my father once told me, don't you love you any man? Just take what they may give you and give, but what you can and you can live in the sunshine. So it was a view being thrown around in the early 60s. We're going to love each other, and then one day you're going to look up and I'm going to be gone. 
And and what I loved about it was singing the sunshine was what it was a girl saying that. Um, so yeah, it, it's dark, but it's a generational thing. I think not that not that women weren't left more often than men, but uh, but uh, I think he he's quietly slips that yeah. <laughs> in a very sweet melody. Uh, you're gonna I'm gonna break your heart too. Yeah, yeah, and people and you know that's real life. People do do things all the time that they are don't explain to other people and maybe are inexplicable to themselves. That's right. You know, you think they're going to stay, but they're thinking I'm here for a while. I don't know how long, but they don't say it. You know, you should say it. And, and, uh, oh, well, who am I to say what he should have said in 1964? <laughs> well, you're Ricky Lee Jones. That too. So, <laughs> so how does, um, how, how do you get to the place then in, in the 1970s where you are beginning your career then in earnest? How, what are the, the pieces that fall into place to make that happen? Well, I, um, so from the Beatles, and, and I guess the last Beatle record I really um, studied was the White Album. From the White Album, um, I moved on and out into uh, Jefferson Airplane and the hippie thing that was going on, Vanilla Fudge, Buffalo Springfield. And um, I got, I had a guitar. I took my brother's guitar actually out of his room and I began to um, try to learn chords. I got a Bob Dylan book of songs, but I just couldn't read well enough to <laughs> who knows what he would, what he had really written as opposed to what I was playing. But um, I taught myself coming back to me from Jefferson Airplane. And then I taught myself the next song today. And um, the Beatles songs still re- all still remain tricky you know there's a there you know there's a couple of them you can do that that aren't but they almost always take an unexpected turn that if you're playing with friends or if you if you go to play a Beatles song on the stage that you haven't worked out you will always (laughs) make a mistake because they're very very complicated um uh, I taught myself I give her all my love and that one wasn't hard. That was just A minor, E minor, um, but um, but dang, Beatles song. So by the time I was out on my own on, in 1973, I'd moved to Venice, California. I started going to college, and everything I heard, you know, I assessed as um, a direction to grow in. And one of the the Eagles were really popular. But I just did what they called country rock was very popular. And that had really grown out of Bob Dylan's Nashville Skyline. But I didn't have any kind of affinity for that kind of singing. When I heard Steely Dan, I I went, oh, this is far more interesting to me. And... um, but by the middle 70s or 60s, um, there was nobody singing jazz. And um, I found my way to a unique um, gig at the Comeback Inn in Venice where I lived, singing jazz, singing, sitting in with bands and singing jazz standards. And that was really where I began to have an identity um, that, that people came to see, you know, 10 people, but that's a lot when you're just starting 15, make them whoopee. And now uh, I wrote Easy Money, 
a kind of a, you know, a little a jazzy kind of thing. And everything I wrote was um, leaning towards bluesy, jazzy stuff and, uh, and nothing like a Beatles song. You know, that's so true, right? I mean, when you're a new guitarist, the Beatles are not the band for you. They're so complicated. Whereas I love the Eagles, but, you know, it's so much easier to play Lion Eyes than uh, a lot of those early tunes. Or Rolling Stone songs, which were all pretty basically, um, yeah, or, or Best of My, They're in My Heart. I remember somebody in college playing that. Um Joni Mitchell was everybody's favorite and all the girls, you know, she was the spokesperson for um, young white youth in college. Um, and I, I liked her very much, but I, ha I did not have a soprano voice. So Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell, all the women who sang high, um, I, I just couldn't sing like that. It wasn't the way I sang. So um, the only woman that I could go to to listen to grow near was Laura Nero. Um, she had a voice, a timber that was closer to mine. Um, that's, that's written about a lot in my book. But uh, I tried to really, in, in the book, you know, there's a thing I want to mention that women do or have done. It's so highly competitive for us. There are so few places for us in this boys' world that's music, even now. They give um, they give a few more now, but back then it was. And I and I noticed as as I had a career and time went by, and what I did as a beginner was to say, um, yeah, I like. I like Joni Mitchell, but but she's not really a jazz singer or whatever I said, because I want some room here. I want you to assess me as I am. I don't want you to say I'm like Joni Mitchell or anybody else because I'm unique. And you don't do it with guys who actually, that guy over there sounds a lot like Mick Jagger, but you never talk about Mick Jagger when you write about him. So there's a disrespect as if the the writer can't quite figure out how to talk about women, so the first thing he does is compare them. This has caused women to be so competitive with one another that I've heard women who I, you know, it's obvious they grew up listening to me, who go, Ricky who? Well, I don't know who that is. And then later, I'll read, uh, you know, oh yeah, I listened to her all during high school. But but I know they can't say Ricky. I love Ricky Lee Jones because they fear that if they do that, they'll be dismissed as a as a Ricky, a Ricky, uh, Ackle, what is it called? Well, an apostle. So, um, yeah. So that competition is unique to women. And um, and I forget why I went into all that, what I was going to say, but. But I do like to just say that as much as I can so that people will notice if they're going to interview women or write about them, that, that there's, this, there's just a slight, subtle thing of wanting to compare them and so dismiss them. I think it's essential for us to talk about who our influences are and, and sing them loud. So the one thing I did that I'm proud of as a, as a kid, which isn't a lot of things, but um, that I talked about Laura Nero 
all the time. I knew people, you know, she wasn't that popular then. And, um, and, and tell people, we learn from the generation before, the Beatles, Taj Mahal, Laura Nero. These are my influences. It's not uh, Billie Holiday. I love jazz, but, but here are my influences. And then I went out and, and made my own voice. And I, I'd like to see that, that happen, that people, talk, women can talk about their female influences or influence <laughs> and not point in the opposite direction at somebody who they sound nothing like and, and probably rarely heard so that you won't compare them. Right. That is a, a, a an intriguing sentiment. And if, you know, I'm, I'm going to play this for my class. I think they need to hear that. Uh, you know, this is, a, it's about two thirds women in the Beatles course, 25 students. And, I think they need to hear that because once you, as you just stated it now, it made it all so clear what people do do in the media to try to make distinctions, critical distinctions. And of course, also the artists themselves, which is the opposite of collaborative. Yes. Yes. And I, I have a little bit of hope that it seems like that, that women in life, but also specifically in music, um, can overcome this and, and and be a powerful, you know, if you're not ashamed and you respect yourself, you can um, raise the banner of any other musician and raise it high and, and, and defy people who, who compare you and just keep raising those banners. And eventually there, you know, it'll be obvious what's unique about you and what's, like all the others, because we nobody gets dropped off here <laughs> that hasn't heard a lot of other things. And every if we're any good, everything we hear becomes part of us. Um, and then we turn it around and make it our own. It comes out of us, hopefully, a little different. You know, if I do a Beatles song, I'd, I the only thing I want you to notice is, wow, she kind of enunciates like John Lennon. But other than that, I don't want you to know it's a Beatles song. Right? I don't want to make it unique. So, yeah. You know, you, you've described the 1970s as a kind of uh, total... Uh, breakdown in terms of music and you can see by the end of the decade all of these different styles disco rock country you know soundtracks we could go on and on sort of catapulting and competing and collapsing into themselves Um, and I vividly remember Chucky's in Love coming along and being a kind of it was different and it was a breath of fresh air Um, that must have been really gratifying for you to get that kind of response at that moment when, you know, as you said, there was a a strange collision of musical styles taking place and there wasn't a lot of joy about it. You know, it it was wonderful for me, but it would have been better if I'd have had any kind of experience before that, just something to compare it to, to land on, to, you know, if, and I shouldn't say that. I'm very grateful. But if something had happened that wasn't exactly right up to the very top right away, <laughs> so that when that happened, I go, wow, we hit it big. But but hitting it big, just, you know, three months from being, um, you, you know, on, on unemployment was, a, you know, a, a reckoning more than a celebration, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it it looks better in the rearview mirror than it did at the time. 
it was wonderful at the time, but it, <laughs> there's nowhere to go but down, you know. And and that's and it's okay to go down, you know. Go down to some place that you can maintain and have fun. But there's so much shame in not maintaining the highest point if you've been on the highest point. And um, that and you know, I don't know why, but shame was a thing I I really had to reckon with and re and wrestle with for a long time. Yeah. I should have been better. I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. Um, and uh, and I understand now, uh, I don't think it's um, rationalization, but I understand now that the path I took, I, I just kept driving myself towards a place where I would survive as an artist and keep making new stuff that interested me. And... Um, to stay at the top of the pop world is to imitate yourself. And um, how long, there are some people who do that and they're okay with it. But if you're a driven creator of music, if you're a songwriter, not just a singer, it's, it's a very difficult thing to imitate yourself. It's, it would be, it would be terrible. Or if you're a, a, an artist who, who just kind of writes the same kind of song all the time, like um, Tom Petty, who I love Tom Petty songs, l l love Tom Petty, but he writes basically the same song over and over again. So it wouldn't be such an emotional challenge to keep doing that or to go, I love doing this and it brings me all the money. But like me, I have a terribly restless ADD kind of spirit, and I keep doing something new every time. And that's harder for the audience to follow. That what you just said may be the most Beatlesque thing about you, because, you know, one thing we do know that they thought about while they were making those great records in the 1960s is they very self-consciously said, okay we're making a new album. It's going to be called Revolver. Well, they didn't have the title yet, but it's the album that's going to be Revolver. And we do not want to sound like we sounded on this previous album, Rubber Soul. Um, obviously, Sgt. Pepper, they are very self-consciously thinking, this is going to be different. And you mentioned the White Album. Couldn't be any more different, right, from Sgt. Pepper. So they, they were very interested in what you just described. I wonder if part of where you get that is not just your love of the Beatles, but also... Um, the confidence that your mother gave you because she said, go be an artist, you know, believe in the dream. Well, if you believe in the dream of the artist, you don't stand pat, right? You're totally right with this Beatle observation. You know, that thing was in me at such a young age to always do a new thing. Um, and I never, I never thought about that, but, uh, but they were the map that went in mother's encouragement. Um, to to follow my dream of music of of not living in poverty um, is unique to that moment. Um, I think I think you're you're right on with the Beatles though. That's that's incredible. There's another thing I want to mention that I got from the Beatles, which is the map of songwriting. The Beatles always wrote a bridge, an incredibly beautiful, unexpected moment in between verses and um, 
bridges don't always happen in um, in pop music, and sometimes they're forced. But I still write bridges, and it's an old thing. It, you know, they did it in the fifties, but I I love them for teaching me how to write an unexpected place in a song. Um, uh, the Last Chance Texaco doesn't have a bridge, but the verses move to so many places that it almost serves um, that function. But um, Nana, as I'm thinking about it, I can think of a lot of songs where I don't write a bridge, but, but I try to write bridges. I, I really love their, them for that from the bridges everybody's green because i'm the one who won your love um serving to tell you why i'm writing this song <laughs> that's what the bridge does is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab 4 theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.